0: Welcome to another episode of the I Am podcast. I'm Johnny Wilkinson and I really appreciate you being here with me today. I've got a very special offer from our podcast partner that I don't think you're going to want to miss. As you know by now at I Am, we're passionate about exploring performance and potential. We often look at this through the body, how the food we consume affects us. And this is why we've partnered with Vivo Life, who have devoted themselves to understanding how our nutrition plays a significant role in our growth, both physically and mentally. Their products are formulated by nutritionists and are 100% natural, making them the perfect choice for anyone looking to take their well-being to the next level. A big favourite at the Iron podcast is their Perform Plant Protein, especially in cacao flavour, and their plant-based omega-3 made from high-potency algae oil. Whichever you choose, you'll quickly understand why Vivo Life products are award-winning when you try them out. Plus, their products are delivered straight to your doorstep via carbon-neutral delivery. Vivo Life really embodies the spirit of our podcast, and we're really keen for you guys to try the products yourselves. So they agreed to run their biggest ever discount exclusively for I Am listeners. The code is IAMPODCAST, all in capital letters, which will give new customers 40% off their first order and a further 15% off when they subscribe. The offer ends soon, so don't miss out. Check out their full range of products at www.vivolife.co.uk to discover how they can help you unlock your full potential. Welcome back to the I Am Podcast. This is our fourth series. We've got a special selection of guests and episodes lined up for you this time round. And I think it's full of inspiring opportunities, guidance, practices, all to help us transcend the relationship we have with ourselves and to help us connect to that potential for indescribable experiences of life. We dive into this exploration with both feet in this first outing as we take on the phenomenally complex and challenging subject of death more specifically the grieving process and the power it holds for transformation so thankfully we've got a fabulous specialist on hand to steer us through this difficult terrain julia samuel and she's someone that devotes her time and energy to helping people find their way in what can only be the most unimaginably tough circumstances involving losing loved ones of all ages i think it's such a gift that there are people like julia around who have the will and the courage to operate wholeheartedly in this kind of space a space that for sure i'd prefer to deny and avoid at all costs and maybe a lot of us would because loss fear of loss mortality it holds a potential traumatic power one that can be a monumental play in shaping our entire world views and our personal realities in our conversation julia she elaborates upon this grieving process the importance of it and all the forms it can take she also provides some beautiful pointers for how we can kind of engage with it and harness the life affirming force within it. So together we explore some of the proactive ways also that we can get out in front of it and confront our own mortality and the limiting beliefs we hold around that whilst we're fit and able in this here and now. I hope you really enjoy this fourth series. It's going to be a great one. My name is Johnny Wilkinson. This is the I Am Podcast with Julia Samuel. Julia Samuel, thank you so much for joining me on the I podcast. What an amazing pleasure. I'm really excited about discussing loads and loads of things with you. How are you on this fine day?
1: I am very pleased to meet you. I'm really interested in to see how our conversation is going to unfold.
0: Beautiful. Okay, well, to start that uh, ball rolling, what's your speciality then for those of, of the people tuning in that might not uh, have come across your work? What's, how would you sum up your kind of approach to, to this subject of human's life and and potential?
1: So I'm a psychotherapist and an author. I worked in the NHS for 25 years, supporting families when a child had died or was dying and helped start a charity, Child Bereavement UK, to support families when a child was bereaved or when a child died. So I guess my book, Grief Works, came out in 2017. So what I'm known most for is what happens around death, which all of us will die. And often it's the aspect of life that we find very difficult to think and talk about and face. Since I published my book, I've kind of had more of a platform, I guess, to talk about knowing that we're going to die. How does that help us live well and meaningfully, rather than blocking it and somehow hoping it's going to happen to other people? And also... I think also the piece that gets missed out is that we're all going to be bereaved. And so how can we have the best relationships with the people that we love while they're alive, knowing that one of us is going to die and to ensure that we don't have regrets if they do die or when they die, so that we've had those important conversations before it's too late.
0: Yeah, that's a big area. And it's great that people like yourself are going deep into it I guess it's an area that so much of us, as you just said, want to avoid and step aside from and, and just ignore or pretend isn't there. There's so much within that, I think that I want to explore something there, really, really important is what you're talking about, I think is, is so powerful, but it also happens in many installments in terms of change in the way that we see change is, is completely for me inextricably linked to the view of of death, the death of an idea or whatever it be. But also, as you mentioned, those conversations, those making the most of our moments, how do we do that? It's a massive question of this podcast is how do you make the most of a moment? Because it, it doesn't really belong to those rules of if you do this, 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 that makes a good life, that makes a good moment. There's something more there. And for me, that's hugely around vulnerability. So One thing that comes up as well, first of all, you said about recognizing that that we are going to die, and I'm going to ask you about that now, and and the others are as well. How do we approach it? It reminds me a bit, and I don't want to belittle the idea by relating it to sport in an area where the consequences aren't anywhere near as severe, but it's a bit like you play a game for 65, 70 minutes of the 80, and at 70 minutes, you realize you're 15 or 20 points behind And suddenly for the last 10, you kick into a gear you didn't know you had. And you keep wanting to say to yourself afterwards, why didn't we do that from the start? And it feels a little bit like this conversation now, where you're saying, well, you find out when you get to a certain age or a certain thing happens to you, that you, you understand the fragility of it, the, and the insignificance of who we are, that there's that. And and what's been your experience of, I guess, in that researching this topic. What's been your experience of the transformations in people? And and what would you say, I guess, with that has been the most important thing for people to realise if you had the, the one big thing, I guess?
1: So if I go to what you started talking about, about mm, the moment and the ending of a moment and that life is full of change. I mean, the one certainty is death and also that life is change. And I wrote a book about that called This Too Shall Pass, How to Survive Crisis with Hope. And I think paradoxically, and this links to the kind of second part, too, is, you know, how do we live our best selves when often we're in denial and kind of just sort of live in a less intense way or kind of live kind of always wanting something that we haven't got rather than enjoying what we do have and being grateful for what we do have kind of powerfully and intensely And I think the two aspects of it is, one is that we want to be able to have control. And so we we can get into a kind of very hyper state with our sort of foot on the accelerator, like pushing and pushing, you know, in your terms, it would be perfecting a particular throw or kind of working super hard, but actually you're just kind of drilling deeper into a hole, thinking that this time it's going to be different. And I think the paradox is true, which is when we allow ourselves to feel and experience the pain of the loss, and it could be the loss of that particular throw or that game. It could be the loss of your job. It could be the loss of your relationship. And those are called living losses, but they're experienced like grief, or it is a loss of someone that we love that someone has died. And the difference with with someone that's died is that you're hit you're up against the brick wall of irreversibility i mean you can't go back and get that throw again but there's something much bigger about the emotional investment of this person in your life who you love and somehow you didn't have the opportunity to say goodbye like a lot of the deaths in covid for instance were devastating because people kind of walked in to a hospital and then they were never seen again if the learning I've had over the last 30 years is anything, it is the paradox of when we can allow ourselves to recognize what we most don't want is often the thing that allows us to heal, You know, so that you can learn from the aspect of yourself that you don't like or the event that you don't like by coming to terms with it and accepting it is how we heal. But also that pain is the agent of change. And the thing that we do to block the pain of our own experience, the thing that we failed at or the death of the person we love, is actually the things that do us harm over time. And that pain is our teacher. So when we deny it, we block ourselves being, because it's, you know, evolutionarily, we are wired to for emotions to be transmitters of information, to give us This new reality. I lost the game, or my friend has died, or you know, I didn't I didn't speak as well as I wanted to. And if you let that pain run through you, you incrementally adjust to this new reality. Okay, so I'm imperfect, or I really miss this person. But our brain is a learning machine and it learns through that process of the feeling which then becomes information and then we adapt and it's through that process of adaptation that we can also have the potential to grow and to grow and change because we are wired to change but we in the 21st century always want kind of outcomes and block change because we think if we can curate ourselves and shape ourselves and squeeze ourselves into this version that we kind of Curate then. Then we'll get our outcome, but it's much messier, more painful, chaotic, unpredictable than that.
0: For me, a lot of what you're saying is we want to control even our difficult moments. We want to decide how they are, and therefore we almost want to know. So, how am I going to get over this when it happens to me? And I want the ABC. I want. I want the formula. I don't want the messiness because that is almost again more unknown. Of just feeling helpless and that desire to control, I know it well. I know that desire to control enormously well. And I know how damaging and destructive it is, and how destructive it is when you actually manage to control.
1: Well, I was going to say with you, when you have controlled and it's succeeded, that's incredibly seductive because that is the information you've learned. It's like, oh, you know, this time it really worked. So I want more of that. That one. <laughs> yeah. You know, yeah. that, didn't Sevi Balicer say, "Isn't it funny? The more I practice, the better I, yeah. the better my luck is."
0: Yeah, yeah, the luckier I get. Yeah, the
1: luckier I get. And so, it is both your action and your attitude, isn't it? So, it, it isn't just you can sit back and good things will happen. Yeah, you'd think I would know after all this time that I don't have control that I will muck up and make mistakes. But I still bloody hate it. I, yeah. You know, I, did, I, I absolutely <laughs> yeah. hate it. Yeah. So I don't think we stop feeling about it. And if we stop feeling, then maybe that's also not a good thing.
0: The other alternative, I guess, is, and this is another defense mechanism that I guess I would have had in some ways, would be to, to think, well, I, if I don't want to do the suffering, so I just won't care as much. And then I won't have to do the suffering. And of course there's nothing more isolating than numbing yourself in that way. And then, then it becomes a situation of, you know, what, why does no one care for me? And it's like, well, I'm shutting myself off to avoid. There's so much in there. One thing, so what's really pounding out of this at the moment, and it's a huge part of of everything that's I think behind the, the potential idea is that there's two different opportunities there. There's reacting and there's responding. And, The healing you're talking about, for me, is actually delving deeper into my ability to respond. And that's what I see as potential, is the ability to respond is the potential side, but the reacting is the programmed side. And as you delve deeper into the responsibility, the ability to respond, you're doing more healing, but then I ask, well, where does the healing stop? Because you're not going to suddenly get to, and that's who I am, so I've done my healing by really committing to that process of almost, I want more unknown, I want challenge because I want to delve into that adaptation, that depth, because the healing goes beyond where you were. And this is, I think, the adaptation is so powerful is that I started here, I have this this crisis, a struggle, and I, I allow it, I surrender to it, and I heal beyond where I was before. And it's almost like that idea of healing is almost getting back to where you were. But I think it's bigger than that because so many people that have been through so much, suddenly the wisdom and the new approach to life is, is breathtaking.
1: So there's, I mean, there's kind of two lights go off in my head in hearing you talk about that is, one is this idea of performative reaction and emotional kind of depth response. And when we have a performative reaction, so people who are listening, you have an emotional bandwidth. If you have joy one end and pain the other end, you can, if you block the pain and perform, you can only feel that kind of inch, that portal that it comes through. So the sort of satisfaction and the meeting of you internally, emotionally is very narrow. Whereas if you, Of open yourself to the fullness of the experience, which comes with the cascades of pain and shame and discomfort, you also allow yourself to fully feel everything. So, when you go through that experience, which takes longer than you want, you know, throws you off kilter, and also the thing about suffering is you often become the version of yourself that other people don't like as well as you don't like. So you have tricky relationships, you're in a bad mood, people don't come towards you and it really sucks. But if you support yourself through that process and find the ways that uniquely individually support you, and that is to do with behaviours, exercise, breathing, eating, but also love and connection, finding one or two people who you can feel close to, that then allows you to go through it. And what we talk about through that is post-traumatic growth. So it never diminishes the horror or the difficulty or the trauma of what actually happened. And the level of that is our emotional investment in it. So it may be that there was a the Paddington Rail crash or the Grand Forth Tower, which is a kind of massive trauma, or what we've emotionally invested in, which could be a sport or it could be a job or it could be kind of doing something that we really wanted to succeed in. So it doesn't deny the loss of it or the pain of it, but when we allow ourselves to go through it, then we grow through it. Because what we learn through that process, which I think is what all your podcast is about, is that we learn our perception of ourselves changes our perception of what matters in life changes. So it isn't so much about stuff or status. It's much more about love and connection. It's about being in the moment. It's about finding meaning. And we we find that through the growth of allowing the experience to teach us.
0: Yeah, well, I think that the depth of that investment by having to release and come to terms with it, I think it's definitely part of wisdom. I don't think, I really don't think that wisdom can exist within the boundaries of this idea of materialism, this idea that who I am as this physical being only, and therefore other physical stuff, if I can include that as who I am, I get bigger. You know, so I, my friends, they're my friends. They're not, other people I interact with and love and care for, they, they're actually part of me and, it's, and and my achievements, especially. I'm talking about myself here and it's much easier in that frame than talking about obviously death, which which, which yeah, we'll definitely get to. But,
1: but can, can I add something into this that often gets forgotten is that, you know, we all have multiple core identities and at the heart of each of our identities is the need to belong and be loved and be safe and be part of the tribe but part of our core identity is this need to stand out and be special and that from an evolutionary perspective is to to attract a mate <laughs> and in some ways you know we do need to stand out and be special but i guess it's recognizing that there are lots of other aspects of ourselves that matter as much and that when that becomes the main one that is what then we end up feeling empty and kind of unloved and angry and keep kind of striving for more. I mean, one of the interesting things for, for me is I'm very unsporty. The o- and the only prize I have ever won was the diving cup when I was nine. Nice. But, which, I honestly, it makes me cry thinking about it. I was so proud. But I love sport, and I love watching sport documentaries. So I've just watched the Ben Stokes documentary. Yeah, okay. And before that, I watched the Seve Ballesteros. I love watching teams learning, the rugby women's team. I watch that. And I keep wondering to myself, why am I so drawn to them? Why do I cry when I see people win Olympic medals and stand up on the podium? And some of it is a longing within me to win. And some of it is seeing people win Over massive sort of adversity and difficulty, because often those what those stories are. So I think if we try and make everything about meaning and connection, we we totally miss an aspect of being human, which is to be competitive, to stand out and be special. And I think we have to allow for that too. It's just that it doesn't feed all of us by any means.
0: I think that's when, if I look at my career the sheer intensity, whatever the motivation was, and a lot of it was fear-based. So yes, I wanted to stand out hugely. I could definitely feel that. But there was also this thing about what if I don't win? Yeah, there was that side of, yeah, there's a huge doom. So yeah, the fear massively. But it drove me onto a level of intensity, the desire to stand out. Because actually standing out, I think also meant being successful and from a very child, immature childhood sort of state. That was my answer to the death, you know, it will happen to others, but not me, was, and, and I didn't know at the time it was death, but a little bit later on, it sort of got its hooked, in, hooked into that. But at the initial stage, it was just raucous fear, just doom. And in in a way, death would have been better than it because at least death had a name. This fear was just worse than that because it was so mysteriously powerful. And to write it off or to stave it off, this idea was that it was about meeting it with what I had, was this almost CV that I could put to it and say, this is what I'm achieving. This is the value system that I'm following. And I'm following it to such a level that therefore you can't touch me. And I was going to be saved from it. And I think as much as it was immature at that age, it drove me into a real intensity of performance that, that gave me an edge because I just, I didn't have an off button. You know, it, it broke me down heavily. Physically and in all kinds of other ways. But I didn't, I had that, I guess, advantage. So I really feel that. And I feel that with that, you know, there has to be whatever you're after, there has to be a willingness and a desire. And the stronger that is, the more you're going to get that. I think the thing was, I was looking for freedom through the material way. I was trying to stand out, thinking that would make me free. And I think that was where the confusion was. But I'm interested in that. I wonder if if it, on, if it
1: was, I wonder if it was free or was it safe? Because the opposite yeah, yeah, of yeah. of fear is feeling safe, and fear in the way that you talk about it, you know, you can hear the jaws music, you know, the yeah. doom,
0: <laughs> and
1: this awful yeah. kind of picture. Because in our minds, the f- picture of our futures that we imbue with this doom-laden fear, we can make it limitless. And as dark and as bleak as it's possible to be because our imaginations are so limitless. And the the story then that we tell ourselves about this terrible future is the person we become with this fear that then you have to do everything that you did to try and stave it off and that you suffered massively. So I think, again, it's this paradox. It isn't about not having fear. It's about recognizing that we fear is part of life. Yeah, and finding ways to feel safe, so that because what you said you did, you didn't have a, an off button. So it's a, not about not having fear; it's being able to de-escalate so that you can switch and find movement between, <gasps> which we will all have to yeah. things that you can do that wind you down, that you feel safe, safe in your mind and safe in your body, that builds the resilience. <gasps> to go up and feel fear again because I think people have this idea that once I've found my own kind of inner nirvana and I do yoga and I'm this amazing version of myself, then I'm never going to feel fear again and everything is going to be hunky-dory. And that place just doesn't frigging exist. No, no, no. (laughs) Uh,
0: (laughs) Yeah, and it it couldn't and and because it couldn't because it would be the end of growth and if you if you stop growing, but not I just growth.
1: You. That life is is yeah, life is end hard. Of life. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah.
1: <laughs> you know, I love the idea of seeing life as growth, and that is a very rich kind of inspiring idea. But sometimes life is just shitty. I mean, like right yeah. now, for a lot of people, just surviving with the cost of living crisis, with Definitely. all that's going on, just keeping their head above water will be a really good way of living, mm. and so. I think those of us in the kind of mental wellness field need to acknowledge that sometimes just finding a way of supporting yourself to come back into yourself, to breathe, to take a moment, to be calm, is Oscar winning, is yeah, medal 100%. winning.
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I think I and I agree, I agree because if and I can only relate this to my experience, I'm not I can't imagine what other people are uh, are living There are times when, and even recently, you're going through something, and like you said, the actual ability to not be indulged or recruited by that fear and go off in that urgent panic, but to just stop for a second feels like that takes more than it takes to win a World Cup and build an entire rugby career. You would swap it in a second to say, look, yeah, I'll run around for 15 years getting battered and bruised and going through all the changing room stuff and all the apparent pressure rather than have to face this one second where everything is telling you your reality is here yet yeah, and you have to... And and I think when you mentioned about that for me when I was talking about that that fear and safety, I think it was tr- distrust and and the feeling of trust. But I was also looking for that safety purely through physical. But if you find safety in the physical, the physical is always changing and also the physical ends for us. So th- this is the thing I think I've found was that when I got to a stage where I had everything I wanted, pretty much physically, there was no, like you said, it was, there's, I've seen some amazing, interesting books written, you know, after, Enlighten- me, after enlightenment, the laundry, you know, doing the laundry <laughs> after enlightenment, you know, that kind of idea that you got to get over this idea that whatever it was for me, it was once I get this done, then I can go and do this, whether it was go on holiday for the rest of my life. But of course, there's two things that didn't let that happen. One is that, you don't resolve the sense of distrust just by achieving things or or by getting what you want. And the second thing is that there's also a calling to keep moving, to keep going somewhere in your life. Yeah. And going on holiday feels great for a couple of weeks, but then you start getting itchy. And you know, like I've, I speak to a lot of people I know who are in retirement and they talk about the difficulty of not having purpose, you know, not, not having that, that thing to base their life around. And it's a real interesting idea around understanding that, yeah, like you said, that you're not going to reach the end of it, and nor should we. Talking about death and those sort of things, or talking about losing people, especially a, a child, before we get there, for me, what is it like? And what do you look at? Do you look at the area of specifically children becoming to terms with their first meeting with that concept, where children are in that space of, I'm getting used to life. I go and play. I do this. I do that. I have upset moments and I do this. But then suddenly there's this kind of, you know, their their concept of age. You know, they they know they have grandparents who are a bit older, they have parents who are at that age, they've got friends who are this age, they see babies coming into their life, but they haven't yet put this kind of like, well, hold on, if more more are getting born, how does this work? You know, is that something you look at and what is where does that fit into all of this?
1: So I think children actually Are able to know about death and the permanence of death with much less fear, depending on the adults around them who are either transmitting fear or not. So, you know, children, young children have this magical thinking. So the permanence of death isn't a concept they can take on board because they can imagine. So often people use language like you use lost. They lost or people say gone to heaven or gone to a better place or passed away. Well, children lose things every day, but they find them again. So we need to be very literal with children about, you know, your grandfather has died. That means his body doesn't work anymore. He looks like asleep. he's asleep, but he has died. But also children can learn much earlier than that through seeing a squashed squirrel in the road, maybe a pet dying seasons. So we want to protect children from the fear of death, but that is our own fear. But when actually we tell children the truth and children of all ages need to know the same truth as all the adults around them, because of that fundamental thing about trust, because if the people who you need most in the world, your mum and dad or your grandparents or your carer, don't tell you the truth, you then find out the truth. And then you don't know what to believe or who to trust. Yeah, and it is a, so there's, you know, your core psychological robustness comes from secure attachment. I'm sure you've heard this idea of secure attachment where you have predictable, loving, secure relationships. That it doesn't, They're not perfect relationships. You know, the, Winnicott, who was one of the sort of founders of this, was talked about good enough so that when your parent mucks up they have the capacity to sort of say it and name it and repair so that you kind of can be cross with them. You can bash your head on them and then you can feel loved and held. And so that you learn that life is, um, you can fall over, but you also get picked up and insecure attachment can be anxious or avoidant. And that's where you're constantly looking for it and you're, or you haven't had it enough. So you switch off and defend against it. Like I'm not going to get hurt again. A bereaved child they can the the sort of biggest predictor of that outcome if they've been bereaved significantly bereaved if it's a sibling or a parent, or it could be some grandparents are like their parents, is the love and connection and the parenting they get at the time and after the death. so a big part of that is the is truth, and the other part of that is allowing them to both be bereaved and sad children but also to be a happy, normal kid. So the metaphor we use, and actually I think this is the metaphor that should be used by adults, is that you can jump in puddles and be very sad and distressed and angry. And, you know, grief is messy. It isn't just sad. It's like furious and rage and switched off and, you know, lots of difficult feelings. And you can jump out of the puddle and nick your sister's teddy roar with laughter Have a great game of sport, be really good in school, be naughty in school. And then you move. And the process of grieving is this movement between loss orientation, feeling the pain of it, and restoration orientation, kind of being okay and getting on with life. And that's the oscillation between the two, and that we need to allow both. And that allows us over time to adjust to this new reality that we didn't want and we didn't choose that this person that we love has died.
0: I think we're back to this idea also about controlling, in that you're trying to control your child's idea of what. So you've already got this idea of what is, and and it's an important one from a parenting perspective, you know, for me, especially to have an idea of what's good, what's safe, you know, and, and, and what's right. But to know where the line is, to start know where you're imposing a lot of your stuff, your limits upon your child. But yeah, that support versus that controlling nature, and sometimes around something that that you know is, or you imagine is going to hurt and going to feel a certain way, you you start controlling rather than supporting. And it reminds me of something. The first thing that when I was going through a lot of my crises moments, one of the things that that really triggered a, an interest elsewhere was the person professionally I was speaking to just happened to mention the Buddha and said that he was dealing with pretty much everything you're dealing with. And I was kind of like, who's this Buddha guy? And I saw in the story that it was his father that kind of locked him up in the palace grounds and tried to remove all suffering. So there wasn't allowed to be an older ill person there. It had to be all just joy and fun and games. And of course, the Buddha went outside the grounds and, and saw suffering and kind of had to put it together and went on this voyage. And it was, it was astounding. I feel that there's definitely that overprotection almost that comes from the fact that maybe there's work that we have to do ourselves still rather than thinking that like we're there and we know what's right. Because I think, you know, the immediate understanding is I know what this is going to look like. I know what this is going to mean for someone else because it's what it means for me (laughs) essentially.
1: And I think at the core of that protection and a a parent would naturally want to protect their child from suffering because they love them. Mm. And it is to kind of, support the Buddha's father. It is unbearable seeing your child in (laughs) pain. It really hurts and that you can't fix this. You know, it's one thing when their schoolmate, you know, is horrible to them and you can go and talk to the teacher or the parent, you can fix it. But something like death, you cannot fix. Mm. And seeing your child really distressed is a really difficult thing to kind of metabolize within yourself. So I get why people want to protect their children. But beneath that is our inability to fundamentally trust. And if we trust our children that they can survive the suffering and we create the environment that supports them to survive it, they become trustworthy and they trust themselves. So what we do to protect them is actually what does them harm in the same way as not allowing ourselves to feel pain blocks our capacity to learn and grow and trust ourselves. When we try and block our children from feeling pain, it blocks their capacity to learn and grow as well.
0: That stuff you mentioned at the deeper heart of of the desires of belonging and and so on. And for me, it is massively around the trust, the self-worth and the trust and the relationship with with ourselves. And and when you mentioned there about becoming trusting, this is so powerful because everything I work with in, within a performance sort of, or any kind of level really is based around operating through doubt or operating through trust and operating through faith or operating through. Hope
1: is the other big thing.
0: Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And, and a kind of sense of, which then allows you to be you as close as you can in this moment. And as soon as that happens, It feels a little bit like, but my recipe a while back, I haven't sort of revisited enough to to question whether it's it's still fully relevant now, but it was kind of like all of me in every moment makes a pretty good life. It's quite good. In in all of you, you're kind of thinking, well, how do I be all of me? Well, it's not, you don't, you just be you now as authentically as possible. And I realised that I I kind of, the only time I ever did that was when I was lost in the thick of it or you know in the middle of a game or when you're doing something that's so interesting or exciting to you with your friends that you just you have that time flying moment apart from that i lived in that space of i've got to work this out yeah got to work this out i've got to control it got to find it instead of listening to that other part of you that was saying you know what why not come and be like me <laughs> it's a pretty good life we're having here and for me it was almost like yeah i know but you're you're being irresponsible. You're not thinking about all this stuff. And I think that's kind of the issue here is that there's a trust in the the automatic reaction of the the bereavement and the pain to say, go with it rather than stop it short.
1: You know, that's a a wonderful touchstone, and isn't it? You know, when I can be all of me and through all of me, then I can allow myself to experience this and this is all I need to do. And if anyone listening can step out, zoom out from that kind of core touchstone and look at themselves through different lenses, that will influence the core. So the the external would be, for instance, around death, but it could also be about losses. What is the circumstances of the death, or the circumstances of the ending? What is your relationship with the person that has died? Is it a good relationship, bad relationship? And all of that will affect their experience. What is your history of loss? And also your history of attachment. So if you've had lots of difficult things happen to you, you're going to have less bandwidth to deal with this. If you've had an insecure attachment in the early stages of your life, again, you have thinner roots with which to ground you. What is your personality type? Our kind of personality is our genetic predisposition, which is iterative depending on what happens to us. But some people are born more sensitive. Some people are born more robust. And the big thing that will have probably the most influence on all of the other things will be the love and support that you get at the time of the loss and through your life. So... You know, when we have these big generic ideas of being our most authentic self which and vulnerable and allowing ourselves, it's really unhelpful to compare ourselves with other people. But knowing what it is that make up who we are and how we can fully allow all of that, you can kind of recognize, yeah, no wonder I'm feeling really terrible right now because of all of those lenses. Those are quite extreme. It was a sudden and traumatic death. I had a bad relationship with them. I've had masses of losses. I didn't have a secure background. I don't have much support. So your kind of capacity inside to deal with it is very, very diminished. And so the work that you have to do to get yourself to a place of safety and stability so you can do the work of grieving is much harder than somebody else where there was maybe one or two of those lenses were difficult, but actually the others were more robust. And I think that is useful to recognise in our subjective experience of these things.
0: You mentioned there about the love and support of those around you. My experience is more, you know, I guess is, when I think about this, a lot of it's kind of bouncing back and forth with the idea about going through your uh, a depression or, or a mental health crisis. You mentioned about certain backgrounds and personality types and what's gone on in your life before. And it's almost kind of like, it's it's really close to being able to say, okay, there's a bereavement, but there's also people struggling as well with certain things. And it's all to do with those areas. And and that also talks about the, the love and support of those around you. But a lot of people say it's so difficult to know what to offer, as I imagine it would be and, and is, you know, I guess we've all been there when you're in that space of being like, it's either you going through it with the, the the crises in your life, whether it be a bereavement or something else, or whether you're trying to support someone else. But what have you found to be that, I guess, powerful way of supporting in terms of a longer term beauty to life, as opposed to a short term get over it? Because that a would fix. be, again, we were talking about, get, yeah, the short term fix of, like we said, someone's in pain, you kind of go, oh yeah, but this thing I've been doing has really worked for me. So why don't you go and sit down, do 10 breaths? And you're kind of like, no, stop, that's not support that's needed right now. It might be a nice intention and it's worked for me and my life changed after this, but yeah, that power and support, what are you seeing there?
1: So just to kind of go back a step about the love and support is to recognise that when people are suffering, you know, we're quite a bad design, we're often very difficult. So it's quite, and, and our emotions are contagious. So when you were having your hard time, you probably weren't your most lovable self, and you were probably
0: <laughs> definitely not definitely transmitting. Not. Yeah.
1: Fuck off in lots of different ways, <laughs> and so yeah. Yeah. to yourself as well. Absolutely, and so moving towards you with love, and you had no receive button of like, I am lovable. Come and yeah, help me. Yeah, Yours yeah, was like, absolutely. I am unlovable. Fuck yeah. off. Yeah, and yeah. so that is quite a big hurdle to overcome in the first place, and so I think for those that are supporting other people is to recognize that this is not like you, like Mother Teresa, coming along and just, you know, caring and listening and acknowledging because it takes quite a lot of robustness. You know, love is strong medicine, but it takes commitment of active loving to love this person who is being a pain in the Mm. arse right now. And you Uh. just want them to stop being like that. You want the old version of Johnny that was the one that you married or was your son when he was a sweet kid or whatever. So I think that is really important to kind of put in place this isn't easy. And I think what helps, first of all, is commitment to love is in action, like don't give up. The second is that you can't fix another person, but you can move towards another person and acknowledge that they're suffering. And I think naming, I can see that you're really suffering, or I can see that you're really hurting, or, you know, I'm so sorry, and name the person that's died. I'm so sorry, your brother, father, whoever it is has died, your partner. So acknowledge the loss, acknowledge the difficulty. And then the best thing is listen. Like yeah. you don't have an answer for this person, but by moving towards them with kind of openness and willingness and listening to them, Is a huge first step and let them be tricky. Let them like tell you to fuck off and say, okay, (laughs) but okay, let's go. Think of something that what can we do? Should we, what do you want to do? Should we go for a walk? Should we go and watch a movie? Shall we, what is it you feel like doing? What would you do with me? Or can I come and see you another time? It now isn't the right time. So it's being, letting the person be who they are, not trying to make them be the kind of suffering person that you're, you know, healing, because that's patronising. It's it's like recognising it's messy and tricky. I mean, I don't know in your experience, when you were at your worst, what helped you most from other people?
0: So you know, it's really interesting, because one thing that came to me through a, a bit of a kind of out the blue revelation was thinking that in every moment of my life, I'm always moving in line with a belief that whatever I'm doing now is going to make me happier. Now, whatever it is, no matter what it looks like, and when it looks really a bit all over the place, it's probably because I'm in that space of really unhappy, just trying to be a bit less unhappy. But when you're in that space of pretty happy, trying to move towards happier, you don't tend to mess around with too many other people's lives. You become, you know, a, a space people want to be involved in. And that's been really interesting is is it's now more difficult to look at people and have that judgment of, you know, oh, they're just someone like this because you, you immediately go to the understanding that I think we all kind of want the same thing. And when we're feeling like we're pretty much there and moving towards more of it, we're great. But if the idea is, is we all want to help each other to that space, I guess it's about, like you just said then, it's something came up there when you said about I'll come and see you again. It's the sense that, because I always felt in the middle of it, the sense is you don't care. Nobody cares about me. And everyone's trying to reach me I'm it. alone. Yeah, I'm alone. Everyone's trying to grab in and say, listen, what can we do? They're giving everything. And all you can see, probably exacerbated by the futility of their efforts, is you don't care. And there's no point because, you know, you'll just turn around and get on with your life. And I was really susceptible to that. Seeing someone come over into my world of suffering and be with me, but then turn around and someone says their name and they go, oh yeah, just coming. And you're like that switch from in my world to your world and look how easy it is for you. You don't really care. But of course, you know, when I've been there, you're like, well, you've got to live your life. Someone calls you, you don't turn around and go, I'll pretend you live authentically to who you are, but that sense that I'm not giving up on you. And no matter what it looks like, it may look like I have to get on with my life, but I'm thinking of it and I'm there for you and I will be there for you. And if you need me to come, you know, and and, and I would and not if you need me, but I would like to come back. And I will be here as much as I can. But that really understanding that for me it was important to say, look, it may look like I'm getting on with my life, and that may look like I'm not caring, but also understanding that it helped to be reminded, I think, that in a different energy state of being this is how you see life as well. And as the, you know, this too shall pass, as you were mentioning about your your, your work and your book and everything, it's, it's kind of that. Helping people to say, I'll be with you until it does. But also being aware in my space when I was going through life that looked so dark and then when it looked lighter, to be aware of the transition, not to let it blindside me so that therefore I had some kind of conscious involvement And understanding that that's how it works and to see it work in that time, rather than just wake up one day and be like, I feel better now. Anyway, off we go. It was to say, look, I can see it changing and nothing around me is changing. I can't blame this on or or give credit to the fact that, oh, it's a sunny day today, which is why I feel better. It's kind of like, no, the internal experiences, these things do shift. And this is therefore the state I'm in and this is how I'm seeing life. And it feels like this and to, as you said, explore the vulnerability and to go through the process, but be aware also of those subtle changes and to see that process for yourself. Because I think for the initial stage of my life, for the first 25 years, I let myself get better. And just all I had was time's a great healer, but time was also the opposite because with time I got worse, but then all of a sudden time's a great healer, instead of being deeply aware of that suffering and and, and allowing yourself to feel it, but then watch it as it moves and to have trust in that process, I think, and help people help me do that by being there throughout the process.
1: Yeah. I mean, what's so interesting about what you're saying is kind of having more insight and awareness of your own process when you're suffering and that when you are feeling depressed, it does look like everyone else has got these happy lives and you kind of hate Mm. them for it. And you, (laughs) and you kind of hate them coming towards you, but also it's what you need the most, but recognizing it isn't time. That's the healer. It is doing the work during the Mm. time that is Mm. the healer. So when you begin to incrementally notice from when you're in your bleakest place and that maybe we never have control over that, you know, and that that will it emerge and happen, but that also you learn each time what you can do to manage it a little bit differently this time. So you don't kind of compound your depression by drinking, gambling, doing all the things that make it much worse, but you find, you know, the things that your toolbox of, you know, I don't know whether it's exercise and meditation and and that they can't fix it, but they definitely... Protect you going further down to a kind of really suicidal place, I think they can really protect you, whereas very negative behaviours can push you to to suicidal ideation, and that maybe it has its own internal weather that it has this weather that you know it takes you into the wave of the of the dime, but eventually it too shall pass, and that you don't control when you come out of it, but what i 'm interested in is in that process of transition of coming out of it, the story you tell yourself is the, is the version of yourself that actually supports who you are rather than a kind of blunt instrument of ignorance. And yeah. I think that, yeah. and so you expand a little bit more each time and the, the love of others, their commitment to do it even when people are unbearably awful, that they love you enough <laughs> when you're awful, and that you feel that over time. I think that does make a proper difference when people keep showing up. The, the few yeah. people, you know, there aren't many people who really love you enough to keep showing up. Uh, There's probably a handful in one's life.
0: Yeah, definitely. i just thinking about the people that's sh- showing up in my life and and that initial stage of being there with you. But then on that transitional point, there becomes momentary flickers of things you become excited about just slightly. Whereas before there's nothing, it's darkness, but then there's flecks of light, momentary urges to say, actually, even though I feel like this, I also am slightly interested in going and doing this. And I think acting upon that voice, even though the bigger voice is the darker voice, to try and tune into that, that other voice that says, I am feeling terrible. I would like to watch a film now though, I think. And you're like, okay, let's, let's do it. And having people there that can say, like you just said, what would you like to do with me? You're almost saying, is there some excitement in there? Can it? Can we find anything? And if not say, okay, well, we'll sit. And, and also in a way, I guess that might be what's most exciting to you right now is to be like this. And it's kind of like in a, in a strange way, but.
1: Because when people try and yank you out of what you're in, there's a resistance. Like, don't you even try. Yeah. Like, yeah. You know, you're not going to take me out of my pain. But what you're saying is that when you, which is, I guess, what I'm saying, when you allow yourself to feel the pain, you can then have those little kind of incremental shards of light, which I call hope, you know, and hope is the alchemy that turns a life around and kind of little shard of curiosity or a little shard of that if you can, through your experience of knowing having experienced it before let me <laughs> gently support myself to do the little, the little yeah. small things that yeah. can support me. That that is that then be- can become a much bigger. Thing. And
0: I think also, I think also, also that without the expectation that it needs to be a certain way, I'm just thinking. You know, when I was in that state, and people say, "Come on, let's go and do this," and it's something you might have been excited about before. You know, we always do this on a Wednesday. Let's go and do this, and it makes it worse because you put your whole life into, well, maybe this will be it. And when it doesn't work, you think, well, what have I got now? But even to say, I want to watch a film and you watch 10 minutes and then you say, I don't want to do this anymore. That's okay. It's 10 minutes. It's huge in that world. It's 10 minutes, you know, or or five or, or a moment of that flick, that, that flick is like, it's a, I sort of think about it for me. One of the experiences I had and, and do have is that it can feel like a, like a dark room, pitch black, and and yeah, you know, that all the doors are, are locked and nothing budges and everything, and then all of a sudden you you, you daily you go around checking all the doors and they're all stuck and then one just moves a touch, and a tiny shard of light comes in, and suddenly your world's different. Like you said about hope, you go from "I'll never get out of here. It's horrible. There's no one else in here with me." And that door, and I
1: hate everyone and yeah, life.
0: I hate everyone. Yeah, yeah, and no one's trying to get in to help me, but then that door just rattles rather than is stuck and a bit of light comes in and suddenly you can feel like there's hope there. Well, if the door moves a bit, maybe it can move more and maybe other doors might start to, you know, like that just starts to flourish. I mean, And you mentioned about don't give up and stay with it and everything. And it rem- one of the things with that trust that comes up a few times is this idea that you're never off the path. This is all part of the path.
1: Yeah. I like. And
0: that. I think, and I think part of being consciously aware during it is to see that the path continues, that it hasn't been a kind of, oh, whoa, whoa, and then bang, oh my God, I must have fallen off the, you know, the path here and I've got to get back on. But to realise I'm going that, backwards. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I'm, or going yeah. And but there's subtle there's subtle sort of parts of seeing it. I mean, this is not so much around the bereavement idea, but for me in my state, there's subtle parts of seeing when you're, you know, heading along that road and you realize that yes, before the path has been a bit more windy there, but actually when you catch it more subtly, you can be a bit more able to choose which way your path goes, but to also just see that this is part of it. And if, and if I'd like to sort of ask you, is it important to experience bereavement as a way of also connecting to your own sort of mortality, your own impermanence? Is that a part of the path to say me experiencing this is also bringing me closer to understanding that I've, coming to terms, you know, getting older is a funny one. I met, I met a friend of mine yesterday who hadn't seen each other for 20 years and you do look and go, Oh, mm. <laughs> what's changed here? You know, like, wow, we are getting older, but is it, is it important in that way as a way of, you know, does it work that the more of the, these moments that we, we, we sort of handle and, and heal through that we, we start to gently s- soften with regard to our own sort of process.
1: I mean, I think that's you know, a real piece of wisdom that you're recognizing is that every time we are bereaved, we are inevitably put in touch with our own mortality and kind of know in a way that we can't not know that people die, and that means I am gonna mm-hmm. die. And in fully knowing that, because we have to be in denial. I mean, you couldn't get up every day thinking, I'm going to die today, or I could die today, because it would be unbearable to dare to get out of bed. You would just stay in bed. So Mm. we have to have a kind of blissful ignorance that death happens to other people. But for those moments of kind of clarity about purpose and meaning, I think it really helps us to know that we are going to die. And you know, that kind of inventory of like, if I died today, you know, if I, I'm driving my car to a, a literary festival this afternoon, if I died in a car crash this afternoon, what would I regret? Have I told people I love them enough? Have I lived with enough meaning? Have I done a job that feels valuable? Rather than, I mean, would I ever think, do I need a bigger house? Or mm. do I need that velvet jacket, which I was looking at on Instagram. <laughs> <laughs> well, what
0: colour was it, may I ask? Was it red,
1: a, red. Was it a red one? Was it, <laughs> yeah. yeah, very nice, very nice. So, I mean, and I think we need the small stuff too. So, I mean, I'm not yeah. saying that we shouldn't, but fundamentally what matters is love. At the end of the day, it's have I loved enough? Have I given love? And have I received love? And have I made sure that the people I care about most really know that? And have I had, you know, one of my difficulties is that I'm a workaholic. I'm a child of alcoholics and addicts. And so I work incredibly hard. And I can slightly fool myself that I'm doing it with purpose and meaning because I'm a therapist, you know. Mm. But if you're a hmm. therapist working so hard, working for other people, and you're not spending time with your own kids and grandchildren, you know that is yeah. that Absolutely, that, yeah. that yeah. is not a good measure. Hmm. You know, so if I don't have time to see my own children or spend proper time with them, I mean they're all adults, then I'm not living by my values, and that isn't a good thing. But you know, work which you do, like what we do, is quite addictive because you're going to be much nicer to me or clients are nicer to me or doing something with purpose and meaning going to the festival, I'm going to get praised. My own family don't think I'm marvellous. <laughs> <laughs> they they hmm. don't tell me, like, oh, you're uh, incredible. They're just like, they're cross with me or, you know, like ordinary. And so it can be very seductive to do the kind of public-facing things when really we should be choosing to be in the kitchen, around the kitchen table with our family.
0: Well, this, this is interesting in our environment, sporting environment, so much is spoken about habits. Yeah. Good habits, bad habits. And, and within, with respect to sort of building available pathways for your behavior, it's important to learn skills and to learn those skills well so that you, when you're performing, they come quick, the pathway is already there. And you've practiced it. You know, I always to say, you know, I don't really want guys in a team doing stuff that they haven't practiced, you know. But at the same time, what we're talking about here, the idea that habits are great, but not if they start automatically living your life for you. Mm. And this is what I wanted to get at a little bit in terms of when you work with people in this bereavement area. Because I've become aware, I think, a lot of things that I picked up, ideas I I've solidified, concluded emotional reactions that have dug in deep down and built understandings for themselves and created defense mechanisms that are all tied in have become conditioning and habits. And every time I have a crisis mode, I get a little bit closer to seeing how they're living their life, my life for me. The whole damn thing. I'm so not involved. And I think this is the feeling of potential is that when you step out of it, you go, oh my God, life's great. Why oh, so big? And then you you can get caught back up into, and these crisis moments, I think they're quite powerful. And I'm in the challenge does release you from the cycle a little bit to see in the intensity, but it's when things are going okay, it's much more difficult to find that space, I think, because the habits can creep in. And like you said, you know, when you're 25 minutes from the end of a game and you've got to score seven points, you're in, you are so in. And and we had this with a-, a But
1: that's a bit like an a, orgasm, isn't it? It's so intense and you can't live yeah. your life like that. I mean, do you know what I mean? No. It's just like, it has to be that intense. That moment is a heightened state and you can't never live your life like that.
0: No, absolutely. But, but in terms of becoming more aware of, am I involved in this? Is this how I really want to be? Right now, and and is this really what I want to be doing? And that question about the death thing is so interesting because, on that level of intensity, like you mentioned five minutes to go in the game, or in a much much bigger way, oh gosh, we're you know right in this space. How am I going to spend my moments? And you suddenly have that clarity. But in terms of the bereavement work you're doing, obviously there's the the work on the attachment, the, the the emotional investment, the feeling of loss, and everything. How much does that start? creeping over into a lot of the other work that might be sort of more in terms of the psychotherapy around childhood trauma, as you mentioned about the personality, the conditioning that's been part of the life. Is it all tucked in there or do people tend to compartmentalise between I just want to get over this or does it tend to actually involve deeper work?
1: First of all, to do with habits, I think, you know, structure and habits can be a kind of gentle framework to support us, to hold us emotionally, because emotions are, are, you know, cascade and they're like waves that come and get us. So I think, but also be gentle with our structure, not a police state that kind of rules us like a like an authority. Usually, yeah. We, in short, in answer to your question, a new loss or a loss will always put us in touch with all of our emotional selves, So we can't really hive off and just do the grief bit when there's there's so much else that is hurting or we've had difficulty with. So it brings up all of us. And I think one of the things that's worth talking about, it's a new book I've done this year, which is Every Family Has a Story, is Transgenerational Loss. And the idea of that is that what isn't experienced and expressed in one generation gets passed down to the next generation until someone's prepared to feel the pain. So looking at your history of what you came into this world with and what you've been grappling with, some of it, a lot of it may have been your own. But if you look back at your parents and your grandparents of their history of through the war or losses or trauma or suicide or... You know, economic crisis, Mm. all of those things, you could be carrying losses that absolutely nothing to do with you, that are in your body. And it is worth finding out your family stories to kind of be able to name it. Because again, this whole idea of a narrative, you know, the story we tell ourselves and the story we let ourselves know is the person that we become. So that if, you know, I, for instance, I'm a child of grandparents who fought in the First World War who never kind of dealt with it. My parents had very... My mum was an orphan by the time she was 25. All her parents and her siblings had died, killed in the war and other things. And my dad the same. But they never talked about loss. So it's no surprise that I unconsciously find myself dealing with bereavement as a therapist. You know, I didn't go into another type of psychotherapy And so we're so influenced, I think, by both our known and our unknown history. Mm. And it is worth exploring what our unknown history is. But in short, a new loss would always bring up everything for us. And so, yeah, go on.
0: That's that's fascinating. I think it's fascinating. I think it's fascinating because... I'm just thinking now, when you see someone and they're struggling and and you think, Oh, I'm I'm onto something with this kind of sense that who knows what they're going through and what they've had to deal with in their life. But you can expand that to be like, who knows what their parents have been dealing with and their grandparents. And who knows? Yeah, because like you said, if you're going to be empathetic and feel the ability to respond emotionally versus react physically, you can go everywhere. You can feel on behalf of, someone's grandparents, grandparents and grandparents and grandparents on the basis of, because, and I think that's a deeper sense of that connection is that you don't just see the person and go, I'll give you a break because you might be having a tough day. You kind of go, who am I to know anything about yeah. you and your family and their family and their, but also the other part of it being that in this time around COVID, I've found myself particularly sensitive to that, to the palpable atmosphere of anxiety and fear. And I don't know where there's with, whether there's bereavement in there as well. But all of a sudden you walk around and you feel a bit like, why am I having these kinds of thoughts all of a sudden? Why am I feeling here? And I think when you do, when you when you turn and face and you do the the, the work, as you said, you're working on behalf of everyone that's been and everyone that's coming. But also I think you can be doing your teamwork for everyone that's yes, here now. It's collective. Saying, I
1: mean, there's definitely been a collective grief. And I think you know, the point that you're really making is not to judge other people, not to make assumptions and diminish them by your judgment, which often comes from ignorance and also says more about you and what you don't like about yourself than it normally does about the other person. (laughs) That's a huge one. That's a huge one, isn't it? Yeah, it's so big. But also… The mirror effect. Exactly. But also to be empathic and you know, then we do become a slightly better person who we like to be within ourselves a bit more because we're not being that judgy, muttering, bitter person in the queue. We are a bit more kind of open-hearted and generous and recognise that we're all suffering at different levels at different times. And there's been, a—I mean, I think we're still, I think, we, you know, there's a massive collective grief from COVID and the sort of political instability and now, you know, with the Ukraine war and and the cost of living crisis, I think this sense of like living in this perma crisis is very destabilizing. And I think a lot of people feel they have much less capacity to manage queues, parking, you know, and that so we're all more heightened and coming from a place of fear. And that means you have spats and you're more cross with the people and you just have a worse day. So the more that people can do to wind their system down, to deescalate and find kind of habits that enable them to go from fourth gear to first gear, that thing of moving in the puddle and out of the puddle is, is really, really important because you need to feel safe. To then step up for the day, and that there. Is, but safety isn't a place you live; it's this moving in and out.
0: Is it a thing that we can essentially, you know, like if you look at the these big moments of bereavement as being the big sort of more intense happenings in our life? Can we start to practice? for those moments or prepare for those moments by looking at the smaller moments we get in our lives now, becoming more aware of these ups and downs, this tension, this fear and doing that work. Now, I know in my career I suffered with injury right in the middle of it. And, and that was a what loss had, for
1: you, by the way, that injury was at, a massive yeah. loss of trust in your yeah. body. Definitely. Th- the feeling of strength of your immortality, like, you know, <laughs>
0: exactly, exactly. And as a result, having to do that work meant that when it came to the end of the career, which normally for people is the big one, it kind of just, yeah, yeah. I've, I've sort of, I've sort of seen this This is familiar. Bit. Yeah, it's familiar. And I wonder if, you know, is, is that something you, that you would say is, is a worthwhile thing? You know, it's worthwhile doing the work at any point, isn't it? I think, but, but just understanding that, you know, who knows what's coming, but y- whereas it's kind of like, oh my God, it could be terrible, but there's I think there's opportunities every day to start getting used to the, the 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 ability to respond that we have versus the you know the un, the unfortunate reaction we you know that will overtake us to finding out yeah the involvement we can have
1: having important conversations with the important people in our lives about our own mortality, their mortality, and actually having practical conversations like, do you want to be buried or cremated? You know, have you got a living will? Do you want to be on a a life support machine, because although that may feel too much, it actually really supports you to kind of recognize the reality of the death for myself and the people that I love. So I constantly send my children my passwords, and they're like, Mom! (laughs) but you know I've worked with lots of people who have been locked out of their parents laptops or telephones and that is devastating (laughs) you know they've died in a car crash and they can't get into their phone and that would be their touchstone to the connection to that person that you know they want to see the messages and they want to see their email so there's the bigger kind of practical bit of like recognizing that we're going to die and paradoxically in recognizing that we're all going to die, we do engage and live life more fully. I think in recognizing we're going to die and having those practical conversations to some level protects us from terrible regrets and missed opportunities when the person we love does die. But also in the kind of minutiae of it, recognizing that every day, as you've talked about, is an opportunity to live fully and that it ends every day is the sort of minutiae version of the bigger version of that. And when we recognize that, we are naturally more open to our full experience. I think we're more grateful for being alive. You know, I can look outside and see it's pouring with rain, but actually kind of bring it on the rain, you know, be grateful that we've got weather and my internal (laughs) weather and that life goes on, and that I don't have control over that, but I can support myself to manage myself given whatever happens to me, I think is a way of living.
0: The idea about not holding back in terms of letting people know, why hold back? Because you just never know. And for me, sometimes what would hold you back would be the sense, oh, but it feels a bit silly or I feel a bit not me or what. But then in doing it, is a sense that you almost kind of walk into that space of what you think will be humiliation, which is the death of an idea, which is then moving towards this freedom to be like, well, all of me is going to be, so what am I holding back for? Why not, you know, why not get used to the process and, and, and put myself out there and say, when it comes crashing down a bit, say, yeah, yeah it's okay. Give it, it will go. crash down. Yeah, yeah. Give it a go. Exactly. Julia, what a, a beautiful conversation and about some really difficult and challenging topics but one that I feel has got so much possibility in and I certainly feel kind of enthused about challenges and 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 definitely more intrigued and curious about something which you know has been so frightening to me for a long time so thank you very much
1: it's a real pleasure talking to you Johnny and I hope even if just one idea takes hold in anyone who's listening that that, that is helpful to them
0: all right brilliant fantastic thank you very much Julia thank you So that's it for another episode of I Am. It's brilliant to be sharing this unfolding experience with you all. If you'd like to get in touch with either me or the guest, then all the information you need is in the show notes. I welcome all and any feedback. I really want all of you to have a hand in guiding the feel of this show and the path of the conversation as well. So just keep them coming in. And until next time, I'm Johnny Wilkinson, and this has been I Am. This show is brought to you by Mags Creative, The executive producer is Megan Hill-Smith. Assistant producer is Alex Macy. That's all for this week's episode of I Am. Before you go, a big thank you to Vivo Life, our podcast partner, who deliver affordable, natural and UK-made supplements straight to your door. Vivo Life perfectly embodies the principles we're discussing here at I Am, and we're excited for you to experience their products firsthand. As a special offer for our listeners, they're currently offering their biggest sale ever. Use the code IAMPODCAST, all in capital letters, to receive 40% off your initial purchase and an additional 15% discount on subsequent orders with a subscription. Visit www.vivolife.co.uk to explore their complete range of products and discover how they can help you unleash your full potential.